This is the World Bank's Infrastructure Podcast. In today's episode, we discuss the market for cyber insurance and its effect on cybersecurity. Some time ago, a medical services management company started its day like any other, only to realize its digital systems were not accessible. Why was that? Well, a ransomware known as Hello Kitty had encrypted all its information so that it was no longer available, and cyber attackers requested a ransom of $750,000. What was the company to do? Facing business pressures, it decided to pay. But thanks to the guidance of its cyber insurer, both the ransom and income loss were recovered. Yet these attacks are happening to many small and medium-sized companies. And attackers are asking for large amounts of money. Coalition, a large cyber insurer, reports that in the first half of 2021, the average ransom asked of its policyholders was $1.2 million, a nearly 170% increase from the average asked in the first half of 2020. So how does cyber insurance help? Let's find out. Good morning and welcome. I am Rumin Islam, host of Tell Me How, and my guests today are Tyler Moore, Tandy Professor of Cybersecurity and Chair of the School of Cyber Studies at the University of Tulsa, and Daniel Woods, who is a Marie Curie Fellow at the University of Innsbruck in Austria. They will be speaking today about cyber insurance markets. Welcome, Tyler and Daniel. Great to be here. Hello. Thank you for being here today. And, and let me start the discussion today by asking you, what is cyber insurance? What does it cover and why is it important? So cyber insurance is a special form of insurance that protects enterprises against losses that are associated with cyber attacks, like data breaches, ransomware, so on. When a firm experiences a cyber attack, the cost can add up pretty quickly. These range from restoring data, rebuilding systems, to lost revenues caused by system outages, through to paying fines from regulators or even defending against lawsuits. All of these costs are typically covered by cyber insurance policies. Somewhat controversially, many cyber insurance policies even cover the cost of ransoms paid to cyber criminals. But beyond just making payments, insurers assemble a team of experts to help respond to cyber attacks, including forensic specialists who investigate, lawyers who advise on notification requirements, and PR specialists to come up with a communication strategy. Oh my goodness, so many different types of people are involved in this? It's a fairly complex process for sure, but ultimately why we're talking about this today and why I think cyber insurance is important is that it provides firms with the financial resources to weather the storm and return to business following a cyber attack. But it's not just that. Because cyber is seen as a large and growing risk, there's this great hope that the insurance industry can help tame this risk. Since after all, they're the experts in quantifying and managing risks. They could do this by pushing policyholders to improve their cybersecurity posture. And in a world where strong regulatory actions uh, are not always politically feasible, turning to the private insurance industry could actually be quite attractive. So I understand that this is a very complex industry, the cyber insurance industry, but are cyber risks so different that we need special insurance for it? How is it different from other types of insurance? 
So we've seen over the last few years that traditional insurance policies, those that might have existed, say, 20, 30 years ago, increasingly exclude losses caused by cyber attacks, and this leaves gaps in coverage. For example, business owners might expect their traditional business interruption policy to cover lost revenues if a cyber attack disrupts operations, but some of those policies, um, and this is actually increasing in prevalence, exclude losses caused by cyber attacks. Another way in which cyber insurance is different is that traditional insurers maybe have less expertise with the security industry, whereas cyber insurance specialists have built these relationships over time that mean they can put you in touch with the people to, say, respond to an incident, as Tyler mentioned earlier. I see. So cyber insurance can do all these wonderful things. So is it a silver bullet? Can business leaders sleep soundly at night once they've taken out a cyber insurance policy? Who wants to take this? Daniel? It's important to know that there are gaps in what is covered by cyber insurance and also how much financial coverage there is. For example, firms could suffer reputation damage as consumers lose trust following an incident, and this could cause lost revenues on an ongoing basis, and this loss of reputation would not be covered by cyber insurance. Similarly, if you talk about the competitiveness lost due to stolen intellectual property. The second aspect in which cyber insurance doesn't cover the entirety of cyber risk is that coverage limits are fairly low for cyber insurance. And that's especially true for large corporations. This is because cyber insurers and also the reinsurers who insure the insurers are uncomfortable with the risk. And this means no single insurer is comfortable taking on a large amount of cyber coverage. So the way the industry solves this problem is they build what is called a tower policy. So in a tower policy, the first insurer will agree to cover the first $25 million of coverage, the next insurer, the next $50 million, the third insurer, the next $100 million, and so on. And through kind of coordinating insurers, uh, the industry has been able to build coverage with a total limit of $1 billion. But even this may not be enough to cover the entirety of cyber losses that certain organizations Face. Yes, of course, the losses can get very, very high. Now, could you say something about the status of the cyber insurance market worldwide? Uh, do a lot of countries have active cyber insurance markets? Tyler, you want to take this? Sure. So the US is a leader in cyber insurance, but you know the coverage is global in nature. You see it uh, across many developed economies and Europe and Asia Pacific. I mean, it's most widely available in the places where there's significant potential for claims. And so that's going to be where the economies are most developed. Um, before ransomware became so prevalent, the most common type of insurable event was actually data breaches. So let's remember for a second who actually buys cyber insurance. It's enterprises, not individual consumers. So when you think about data breaches, they really become a problem for enterprises only in those jurisdictions where there are laws that compel disclosure when a data breach occurs. And the U.S. was a pioneer in this respect. It was the first place where data breach notification legislation came around, uh, beginning in California in 2002. Now that that obligation to disclose when a data breach occurs has spread to other countries, 
you actually see a similar spread of cyber insurance coverage to those countries. I see. So that legislation then increased the demand for it. That's interesting. Absolutely. And it sometimes works that way, but not always. So cyber covers a lot of threats. So when we look at a more recent topical threat, ransomware, uh, that too has created demand for insurance cover, but it did not require a similar obligation. Didn't require legislation, you mean? Exactly. So ransomware is different than, say, data breach notifications because there was no need for state legislators to come in and say you have to disclose when you experience ransomware. It becomes pretty obvious when an organization has ransomware because their systems no longer work. Oh, so that's the difference between the two. I was just about to ask you. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, so the, diff- the difference between ransomware and data breaches is that when, when you lose personal data, uh, you're a large corporation, you lose a database of 100 million customers, the cyber criminals might have access to it, but that's not really something that they're going to necessarily proclaim to the rooftops. And the, the company who lost it isn't going to want to talk about it either. So that's why we had legislation which uh, obligated those firms to disclose, which made the harm uh, salient. Now, with ransomware, uh, attackers come in, they encrypt all of the drives and systems of a company, and those systems just screech to a halt. And this is very observable. And so uh, there's no need for legislation to come in and say, uh, you have to let consumers know this happened. It becomes newsworthy on its own. And so the insurers, now that companies are disclosing naturally when a ransomware attack happens, they can step in and actually provide coverage for it. Uh, and where do we see ransomware? It's, it tends to be in countries with more advanced economies because they're perceived by cyber criminals as having a larger pool of valuable targets for demanding ra- ransoms. Well, what was that attack um, in Bangladesh, the Bangladesh Central Bank some years ago? Wasn't that a ransomware attack or, or not? Uh, so no, that was a different kind of attack. And th- th- this is what makes cyber so interesting. It, also what makes cyber insurance so difficult is that there is such great variety in the types of threats. So you have data breaches, you lose personal information, ransomware, they encrypt your, your systems and, and extort a ransom. In the case of the attack on the Central Bank of Bangladesh, that was actually a compromise of that central bank so that they could issue fraudulent um, request to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York through the SWIFT network to essentially issue requests for payments to the criminals. So they, they, they actually extracted money from the accounts at the Bangladeshi's account at the New York Fed and got money out that way. So yet it's an, a whole new way. And so if you're an insurer, you think, okay, there are so many possible threats, so many different ways in which we could have a claim for our customers that you can see why they are resistant and sort of having very large policies like Daniel was describing for their customers. And this market has been growing uh, a lot recently, right? Exactly. So so the cyber insurance market has been growing um, quite considerably in line with sort of the the rise in the number of sort of adverse events that we're reading about in the news, right? And so it's been growing 30% year on year since the mid 2010s. And, you know, actually... Until a couple of years ago, about 2018 or so, prices were actually falling in real terms because there was more competition among insurers to gain market share. And then ransomware really takes off all of a sudden, and all of these previously profitable lines are suddenly bleeding cash. 
Uh, as a result, what we see is that the insurance premiums, when enterprises re-up, they go up by a lot, as much as 30% or more. Uh, and as a result, we also see some insurers who've decided this market just isn't really worth it anymore and have, they've dropped out completely. Of course. A lot of volatility like that um, can make a lot of firms drop out. So the demand for insurance increased because of regulation and because companies faced many more observable attacks, right? Uh, what about supply? Daniel, do, would you like to say something about this? Yeah, so over time, as Tyler said, more companies came in and began selling cyber insurance. And the reason they did that is they looked at the initial innovators who began selling insurance. And what they realized is these companies were making profit kind of hand over fist, especially when you compare that to saturated insurance lines, like say automobile insurance, where the kind of profit that insurers can extract is quite low. In cyber insurance, it was much higher. And this was partly because these insurers, they were innovating and they could charge high prices because there was less competition. But then over time, more insurers piled in. And in our paper, we show this kind of longitudinal view of prices and they trend down since 2012. Then in 2018, the ransomware um, epidemic begins to bite. And then you see prices increase, insurers dropping out of the market. I guess that's what Tyler was pointing to. Yeah, go ahead, Tyler. One, one thing I'd like to add here as a, is that the biggest cyber risks that keep the C-suite up at night goes far beyond the events that are readily insurable. Now, it's true, no company wants to experience a data breach or be hit with ransomware, but there's a concern that a catastrophic cyber attack above and beyond could threaten the business with an attack that's essentially unrecoverable. So think of an attack on a bank that fundamentally invalidates its, its accounting ledger so that customer balances are all wiped out and all backups are corrupted. Or say a cyber attack on an electric utility that triggers prolonged outages or cascading failures on the grid. These more catastrophic tail risks are hard to model precisely because the population of hypothetical cyber attacks is practically infinite. So in the face of these hard to quantify risks, insurers are gonna rationally limit the amount of coverage available, which in turn dampens the enthusiasm of firms who are gonna turn to insurers to manage those tail risks in the first place. That's a difficult cycle. Now, let's speak a bit more about the roles of cybersecurity uh, versus cyber insurance for firms when they're managing risk. I mean, cyber insurance only matters when your cybersecurity measures fail. So what's their incentive to be tighter, better on cybersecurity versus taking out a cyber insurance policy? Absolutely. Cyber insurance is just one component of an overall risk management strategy, the risk transfer piece. There's also mitigation, avoidance, and acceptance. And when you look sort of at most of the cybersecurity industry, they focus on avoidance and mitigation. So avoidance comes in the form of policies against risky behaviors, foregoing profitable ventures due to the risk that might be introduced. Uh, whereas mitigation is what the large and growing cybersecurity industry sells. It's the technologies and services that are designed to minimize the risks associated with cyber attacks. But the fact is, no matter how much a firm spends on those mitigation efforts, some risk will remain. So it then becomes a firm decision whether they're going to accept that risk or transfer part of all or all of it through to insurers. And so I would say that firms have a reasonable incentive to transfer some of that remaining risk. Now, there's a limit in that the cost of security controls that would mitigate risks 
often dwarf the insurance premiums. So there's a limited amount of control an insurer can say by offering a discount for certain security controls that may not influence a firm's decision as to whether or not they're going to buy the cyber insurance or, or adopt a control because the cost of adopting that control could be many orders of magnitude more than any reduction in premium that you might get for adopting that control. Right. So there's definitely an evolving cost-benefit calculation going on. What do you think that the role of government is in this market? Is there a role for government? Daniel, would you like to take that? Yeah. So the biggest question in cyber insurance policy right now is, should insurers be able to indemnify ransomware payments? Right now, governments already influence negotiations and the decision to pay via financial sanctions. So for example, in the United States, the OFAC guidance basically describes who you're allowed to make payments to. And there's a list of entities that you are not allowed to make payments to, and that includes some ransomware gangs. So, uh, so Daniel, could you just uh, tell us what OFAC is? What does that stand for? OFAC is the Office for Foreign Assets Control. Thank you. There are also voices pushing for government policy to go further than this and to issue a blanket ban on insurers paying ransoms. The argument is that by paying ransoms, the gangs only invest more in expending capabilities to infect more firms, and also the next time they compromise a firm, they will demand even more of a ransom, a higher ransom, and this is known as ransom inflation. It is hoped that the ban would prevent this. But insurers push back by arguing that in some ransomware incidents, paying the ransom could be the difference between the business surviving or not surviving. And we should note that in industry surveys, only less than half of ransoms are actually paid. Most firms still recover from backups. Ah, so I, I didn't know that actually. Um, now, what happens when they pay the ransom? What has the evidence shown? Does the attacker exit then? What happens? Yeah, so this is a fascinating topic. So kind of you expect this is a cyber criminal operating often in a foreign country. Why would they kind of respect this contract? But what happened is professional negotiators were brought in, often recommended and paid for by insurers. And over time, those ransomware negotiators have kept track of how often the cyber criminals honor their payment. So honor the payment by giving back the decryption key. And what they find is the rate at which this happened has actually gone up to over 99% of cases. That's amazing. I would not have thought that actually. Yeah. And I think it's what's really interesting here is on the one hand, this seems great because the organizations get their key back. But then on the other side, you've created this reliable relationships with cyber criminals, and arguably that has helped make ransomware an even more viable business venture. Yes, I'm not sure what to say to that. This uh, Can this cycle be broken? But before we get there, I, I think Tyler, you wanted to say something. Right. So, I mean, you know, the, the whole discussion about ransomware and what government intervention should be, should there be one, is a fascinating and important one. I guess what I'd like to comment on is sort of the, the broader question is what role is there for government in the insurance market and the cybersecurity market generally? Is there a role for government in cybersecurity writ large? I would say absolutely. And the reason why is there are externalities everywhere you look in cybersecurity. 
So when a cyber attack happens, the harms often go beyond the firm who's directly attacked. When, so when hackers access the credit files of 145 million Americans when they breached Equifax, the harm went way beyond just Equifax itself. It created lasting harm to individuals who had no say over Equifax's security practices. When Colonial Pipeline shut down following the ransomware attack last spring, it, it created chaos across the U.S. eastern seaboard, disrupting energy supply chains. There were people literally putting gas lean into plastic bags. <laughs> that, that was caused by a ransomware attack. And yeah. th these are negative externalities. So the harm of, a, of an attack went far beyond the original target. And whenever you have a negative externality, which is a class of market failure, this means that firms are likely to underinvest in the security required compared to what would be best for society as a whole. It also means that they're less likely to buy cyber insurance coverage than they should do, since the cost of a catastrophic attack is borne not only by them, it's borne by others as much or more than them. I mean, I'm getting the sense that you don't have as much disclosure as, as one would like to have about what's going on in the market. Then how do you get data? How do you learn about what's happening and how to, how to better prevent attacks, right? So how limiting is the availability of data on attacks and the nature of the attacks to the development of the market. So clearly in any line of insurance, if you collect more data, you study it, you can price the risk better, identify which controls are effective to reduce risk, and these are great things. But there are some peculiarities of cybersecurity that actually make this really difficult in the actuarial context. So we could ask if historical cyber data is ever relevant due to dynamics in cybercrime and technology. For example, how much does data from 2010 help to kind of price risk when that was before ransomware was a widespread form of attack? You can also think about nonlinearities in technology. So in 2016, Two separate sets of academic researchers tried to predict the maximum size of data breach that's possible. So this isn't even kind of fine-grained estimates, it's just establishing an upper bound. One set estimated that there was a 10% chance of a breach of 200 million within three years. The other said that 200 million was the maximum size. In that very year, Yahoo announced a data breach of 3 billion records. So this is a whole order of magnitude bigger than the maximum upper bound that the researchers tried to establish. If reinsurers made this kind of misestimate, the consequence could be billions of dollars. That's clear. There's a huge difference between 200 million and 3 billion. Tyler, you wanted to say something. I see a few sort of fundamental challenges with data in this space. On the one hand, getting good data in cybersecurity has always been a challenge, as Daniel was saying, because firms do not like to air their dirty laundry. So for a long time, cybersecurity practitioners have wondered if insurers could be the solution to this problem, because that's the core competency of insurers is to quantify and price risks. But it really hasn't worked out that way overall. Insurers can't compel insurers to share their detailed information about the precautions they've taken, and they struggle to know which data would be most useful to them, even if they could ask. So moreover, the firms who experience cyber incidents might prefer not to file a claim with their insurer if doing so would mean that they could keep the incident hidden from view. 
you know, what we've seen, and I keep going back to this, is that data breach legislation forced firms to disclose it actually helped create the workable market for cyber insurance against breaches of personal information. So other threats like ransomware, again, they're inherently observable by outsiders and produce readily quantified losses like ransoms paid and business interruption. So a challenge arises in the case of cybersecurity threats where the impact is less easily quantified. And, th and this can happen. So um, there is a potential breach of an enterprise. You may not know immediately what the extent of the harm is. And if time moves on, then maybe you can just hope that the, the effect is minimized. Again, reputation damage is not insurable. And in no small part, um, because this harm is very, very difficult to quantify. So if there was a way to reliably estimate what your rep reputation damage was, I'm sure insurers would offer that policy, but we just can't do it that well. I suppose ex post, you might be able to do it by seeing how many customers you lose. You can. You, you absolutely can. Although, although the question is how generalizable is that uh, right. across, across parties? One last data challenge, the specific cyber insurance I want to mention is that most insurers do not share incident data with each other. And this suits the market leaders in this space just fine, the couple of firms at the top. But once you get further down beyond those leaders, there is a very real risk of not seeing enough variety in the types of cyber incidents and losses so that it becomes very hard to accurately model. Uh, and, so, and that is one final area in which I think um, some government coordination could be of assistance. So let's talk a bit about what happens if there are very large correlated losses, large systemic losses? Can the cyber insurance market survive this? I think this is the big open question. So most insurable cyber events so far have been relatively small and uncorrelated. Even what we think to be big, like ransomware, isn't that huge in the grand scheme of things. It is interesting because it rose from almost zero claims to being the dominant form of loss within a short time but it's essentially a manageable loss. There still remains, however, potential for much larger systemic losses arising from new attacks that dwarf anything we've seen so far. For example, an attack that targets critical infrastructures that leads to prolonged outages at large portions of uh, the world, or that might cause irreparable physical damage to infrastructure that's hard to replace. This could trigger much bigger losses. And so now imagine that the attack targets all the systems running all utilities across the globe. It's, you know, it's not so far-fetched, given that they're all running only a small number of uh, types of code that have a lot of the same vulnerabilities. And these kinds of risks are just going to be uninsurable, barring any kind of government backstop on these large losses. Now, I think introducing a backstop introduces its own set of problems, though, because it's going to encourage this risky behavior and lead firms to transfer their large cyber risks onto the government, while at the same time cutting back their own investments and mitigation efforts. All I can say is that I hope that these new cybersecurity firms that are coming up get us better and better products at affordable rates so that we can avoid these problems. <laughs> well, I, unfortunately, there's an information asymmetry at play there because it's really hard for the, yes. the buyers of these security products to, be, to know whether or not you're getting the best outcome. And so I wouldn't put your 
all your faith in that <laughs> because uh, it's it's not a perfectly working market, I'm afraid. Yes, I've understood that I've put I should put my faith in a number of things, spread it around so that you know I reduce my risks from focusing on just one thing. Absolutely. <laughs> so what should listeners take away from this podcast then? So I'd like to hear from both of you. Daniel, would you like to say something? And then Tyler, please. Firms turn to cyber insurance because the security industry could not provide corporate leaders with peace of mind. Now that's unlikely to change for various reasons, and so cyber insurance will remain part of how firms manage risk. One aspect of that, I believe, should be celebrated, and that is how cyber insurance has created these incident response teams who are engaged via a hotline that's manned 24-7, And in particular, we should see this as insurance setting up essentially this fire brigade of cybersecurity. But still, there's a lot of work to be done. Okay, it's a nice way of looking at it, the fire brigade. So, um, Tala? Right. So, yeah, I guess I tend to think about what needs to be done. I think there's still a lot of potential for insurers to make a positive difference because they Despite the problems we outlined in this podcast, they have great potential in helping us better quantify risks and to help insured organizations prevent cyber attacks from happening in the first place. They can't be the whole solution. Um, We know about these market failures of externalities and information asymmetries, which mean that governments have a role to play. Um, But I think done well, the cyber insurers can really help us make a difference in cybersecurity going forward. All right. Thank you very much to both of you. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Well, listeners, what have we learned today? Firstly, there are innumerable ways for cyber attackers to compromise systems, and cyber insurance can be an important part of the toolkit for firms wishing to protect themselves. However, given the potential for losses to be quite large, Insurers often provide tower insurance, where a number of insurers cover a part of the risk. Secondly, regulation can help to guide and bolster the market. For example, regulation requiring data breaches to be disclosed has enhanced the demand for cyber insurance and has also helped suppliers to get more information and data. Thirdly, before an attack, Insurance providers can encourage firms to adopt higher levels of cybersecurity, but only up to a point, as costs of tighter security are also high. Finally, after an attack, cyber insurers have played an important role in supporting customers by providing strong, legal, technical and other support. There's definitely potential for cyber insurance markets and insurers to support tighter cybersecurity and improved market functioning. Thank you and bye for now. If you'd like to suggest topics for the future, please email us at tellmehow at worldbank.org. We look forward to hearing from you.